0: Information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. the rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. the hip hop course. Hey Leah, how you doing?
1: Good, how are
0: you? <laughs> I just want to say that I love your work. I, I really do. Um it's Thank you. Uh, Yeah, no, I, I, I uh, get to read. Yeah. Well, I, I don't get to follow you on, on Instagram. I know you have a large following on Instagram, but I'm in your I'm in your Twitter crew over here. <laughs>
1: I, I love that. The Twitter crew is like a special crew. It's like a smaller crew, a targeted crew. I get to be myself. I love that.
0: <laughs> That's good. I, I'm glad you you clarified too. I was I was I was worried we said special. I said, Oh no. The Twitter <laughs> crew. What have we done? I got get to them, get, get them tight. Well, welcome to the coolest show. Uh, yeah. Um, so, for all the folks who don't know you, who is Leah Thomas?
1: Hmm. I never know how to answer that question, but um, hey, I'm Leah. I'm from the Midwest originally, St. Louis, Missouri, um, and I currently live in Southern California. And I care a lot about the planet. I also care a lot about my people, and I care about those two things at the same time. So I guess I'm an environmental justice, intersectional environmentalist um, advocate.
0: Well, let's get into that. So what does the environment mean to you? Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I think the environment is... The second I walk outside, I think a lot of times people view nature as, some, as something that you have to like go into, I guess. But I feel like our cities, our communities, our homes, those are all also part of nature Um, and I think all of it should be protected whether it's in an urban landscape I think there should be clean air and clean water in that part of nature or whether we're talking about a national park but I think that nature is all around us the second that we step out of our homes and breathe air and are just out and about in the world
0: Mm. and what about climate justice Mm.
1: Climate justice to me is the combination of both social justice and environmentalism at the same time. There's a lot of different words to describe similar things, but I think the climate justice movement in particular, in my experience, it's been really awesome seeing like kind of a push for green infrastructure and making sure that there's, you know, equitable job creation when we're talking about green jobs and the green economy. Um, But yeah, that's climate justice and making sure that people of color are people in low-income neighborhoods are not exposed to environmental injustices at higher rates.
0: Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, uh, uh, well, well, explain intersectional environmentalism.
1: I know this everybody's is, like, awesome this, this is, there's also, all these words. Also, also, this is all these ah. words. I'm,
0: I'm like, this is
1: great. <laughs> it's funny. I was just in an article um, where someone was like, why are, it's, it's, it's 12 syllables. Why, why do you want to have intersectional environmentalism? And I was kind of like, why not? Because, <laughs> I mean, intersectional feminism has been around for a long time. And I, I love intersectional theory because it comes straight from, from Black women and it was pioneered by Kimberly Crenshaw to just really explore the ways that we're dynamic human beings. And intersectional theory is rooted in her experience of saying, I'm just as much Black as I am a woman and no part of my identity should be left out of this equation, whether it's religion, gender, race, so on and so on. Um, so I guess after just dabbling in environmentalism for a couple of years after college, whether it was being a National Park Service ranger intern, working at a sustainable apparel company, or being more involved in the environmental movement, I wasn't seeing a lot of people that looked like me. And it still felt like, even though environmental justice and climate justice existed, it almost felt like kind of mainstream environmentalists saw it as like an optional add-on. So I was trying to think, how can I make a really clear distinction between no, 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 no. This is a type of environmentalism where it is not optional to prioritize climate justice and environmental justice. It is not optional to leave certain people out of the equation in this type of environmentalism. Um, people of color, their voices should be uplifted and amplified, and we should have a complete Different retelling of environmental history that includes that environmental justice history that includes those pioneers of climate justice. So intersectional environmentalism to me is a type of environmentalism that advocates for the protection of both people and the planet. And it realizes the ways that the injustices happening to marginalized communities and the planet is interconnected because I think the way we treat the planet is very closely correlated with the way we treat people. And not only that, it seeks to amplify unheard voices and, yeah, retell environmental history in a way that doesn't leave out uh, environmental justice and all that good stuff. But I thought of that definition in my room, you know, so I'm sure that it means different things to different people.
0: No, well, actually, thank you for bringing up Kimberly Crenshaw. I'm a, I'm a I'm a fan. Um, and that actually explains a lot because that does connect the dots. So you're breaking down the silos. You're saying that I am my environment.
1: Yeah, I think those things are very interconnected. And I also think that my identity really influences the way that I practice environmentalism and for a lot of other people as well, like indigenous people in the United States might kind of laugh at a traditional environmental agriculture book because they're like, we've been practicing sustainable agriculture in ways that have been really effective but might not be jotted down in this environmental science textbook. Um, and I think that's the same for a lot of communities of color. We have our own cultural traditions that might influence the way that we practice environmentalism. And I think that's something that should be, you know, cherished and also valued in environmental education.
0: Mm. So we're going to get into definitely, I want folks who are listening to understand, we, I may say I.E., for intersectional <laughs> environmentalism, or I may say EJ, for environmental justice. Just so if we slip into that, you know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no new movie coming out, actually. What no. Said, what is, is <laughs> e <and> EJ <laughs> in that process? So I guess my question to you, what is, you mentioned what's similar. What's the difference?
1: Between environmental justice and intersectional environmentalism? Yes. I would say that, so I was reading an article where people were trying to be, they're trying to play games. They really were. They were interviewing me and they also interviewed, um, you know, the, the father of environmental justice and a couple other people. And they were saying like, well, how are they different? Basically like fight. Fight like there's this new word, they're trying to be young people are trying to take over, and I really loved how Dr. Bullard um explained it where he was like, There is no beef, there is no riff, it's just you know, kids they make up their own words to further the work of past generations. So I want to make sure people understand that intersectional environmentalism would not exist without environmental justice. And it's in no ways competing with environmental justice. I think they work together really harmoniously. To me, intersectional environmentalism is kind of like the lens or a path or framework to achieve environmental justice and to make sure environmental justice history is taught in environmental education. So it's really just like a pathway. I also think it's an identifier because I've been an environmental justice advocate, I would say, since studying environmental science. However, I wanted to be able to call myself something, and I know that might sound silly, but calling myself an intersectional environmentalist the same way that I refer to myself as an intersectional feminist, it just just made sense. And I think over the summer during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of Black environmentalists were trying to find safe spaces for themselves and I think maybe that's why the word took off so we could kind of differentiate between the environmentalists that only care about the polar bear and also the environmentalists that are down to advocate for black and brown lives at the same time.
0: When you say safe spaces do you mean safe spaces within the larger climate movement or safe spaces within the larger movement for black lives or a combination of both?
1: I would say a combination of both, but I think more specifically Black folks in STEM and environmentalism specifically, um, because I was seeing a similar thing play out where there are a lot of Black employees at environmental organizations, environmental or outdoor clothing uh, companies. I previously worked in an outdoor clothing company, but there are a lot of people who were like, my organization is one of the most prominent environmental organizations, but they are silent on the black lives matter movement like so it was kind of uh, you know i quit my job uh some other employees from that company quit our job because of the lack of um you know advocacy for for black lives during that time so i think it was just people were looking for community in the environmental space because it was almost like wow some of y'all really don't care about us. Like we gotta, we gotta start our own thing. We need to have our own support groups um, for ourselves. So I don't know. I guess that's how grassroots things happen. It just kind of happens. Like a lot of people just percolate
0: to this. Yeah, Yeah. I like it. I like (laughs) it. I mean, I'm with it. Um, It's interesting too, you mentioned about the outdoor apparel. So I'll tell you a story that once, um, as you know, I'm in the hip hop world as well. And uh, we were talking with folks over at, I'll just say outdoor apparel as as well. There's not to the, anybody know no bad pub, but it is what it is. But so I was talking with them, mm-hmm. and we were talking with them how people in our communities were killing um, each other for their coats, mm-hmm. and we were t- we were trying to explain to them that you know, and they're literally buying their coats um, and their apparel, and in that meeting they said that one they didn't know in essence that quote-unquote, urban communities were wearing their coats. Now I was trying to think, everybody had the coat. Every, I mean, he was like, this was like, <laughs> come on now. Everybody was rocking that coat. So I know you had to see the the dividends and the, and the little the little charts go up, you mm-hmm. know, in Detroit and New York and, and all around Chicago because it was all rocking the coat. But they're like, no, they didn't know. And I would say, well, how do you – and it was literally and, – and, and in essence, they didn't say it in that meeting – but they were, and that's you know. saying that this—we weren't marketing for them. They just—they yep. just found our 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 apparel and made it theirs. How do you feel about yes. when you hear that?
1: So I. Love sustainable apparel, but the outdoor industry specifically is like this. It's 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 interesting. It's interesting. So I don't want to name any brands specifically, but just for context, I'm not talking about a particular brand. Wink. But for listeners, like brands like the North Face, Montclair, uh, Patagonia. Those are some like outdoor brands off the top of my head that have been like adopted in other contexts outside of just like summiting a mountain. So these brands started initially for like elite climbers and whatnot, but then they're actually really warm And the way that like people do, we're going to take it and adopt it into a style that, you know, works for us. And that didn't just happen in urban environments. That also happens in Wall Street. So on Wall Street, everybody wears a Patagonia uh, vest. But I don't hear the same. Even Ted like, Cruz. Even Ted Cruz. <laughs> okay. So even Ted Cruz, or let's take it to the South and let's look at white fraternities. They wear the Patagonia, um, you know, jacket. So these are two prim- primarily white Other crowds that are not the elite climber, why is it okay for white people in an urban Wall Street environment to wear the jacket? Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And the company is very aware of it. Why is it okay for the white frat Folks to wear the same thing, and that's okay. But the second it comes to Black folks, like adopting it in their environment, it's kind—they of, know it's happening, but it's kind of, not about any brand in particular. But they know it's happening, and it's like, why is it you want to ignore that demographic? But you will happily take the money from Wall Street and the white fraternity brothers, but not the other people who are wearing it. So I think there's a lot of coded uh, language and kind of racial language in the. Um, outdoor industry in particular, which is pretty sad.
0: I think there's some hope there too, right? Because if they can actually connect the dots to what you're saying in regards to intersectional environmentalism and as far as to climate justice, maybe they can use that influence to help.
1: Absolutely. And the North Face has done that in part. Like They've partnered with, um, her name is slipping my mind, but the director and writer of Queen and Slim, and she also did that show maybe from Chicago. Chicago or something. I forget her name. What is her name? Olena oh, Witt. Yes. So she was an ambassador for the North Face. And she had this really amazing explorers program um, for different explorers who may, maybe didn't fit the traditional like outdoor explorer summiting a mountain. But they redefined what it meant to be an explorer. And that could mean someone in an urban environment. That could mean someone in the South, in the Midwest. It didn't matter. And I thought that was such a cool step in the right direction for the outdoor industry to be like, we see you. And your take on nature is an okay take, and it's just as valid as me skiing in the mountains, like so that's
0: pretty cool, no, it is cool, actually, Lena, if you're listening, we I know that there's some folks at the hip hop caucus, and you are trying to come together and make some things happen, so hopefully <laughs> you're listening to me and Leah right now talking about it, and you're like, "Oh, I should really get involved, make make it happen so yeah, yeah we act- act- yeah, yeah, no, we're actually trying to. Do some things with her right now on that on that front I'm excited about what you are doing um, in general one thing I just want to add to your kind of description of intersectional environmentalism I guess how does the trauma of environmentalism play in this for our community because you should know as we're dealing with pollution uh, from Flint uh, dirty water dirty air We're dealing with that, we're we're dealing with the the I can't breathe, um, not only from the police brutality, but the pollution. That's a part of that too, right? That's a trauma. And so not just the fact that we are, as you mentioned, I am a womanist, I am a feminist, I am a black woman, I am this who I am in my environment. But then also the trauma that's being caused by these fossil fuel industries is also part of that, Right.
1: Yeah, it it runs deep. I was just talking to my mom and she was like, yeah, when you were younger, all the black kids had to get tested for lead. And I thought that that was weird that only the black kids had to get tested for lead. And I was thinking about that, like, oh, my God, they were assuming that there is a high likelihood that Black children in St. Louis would test for high lead levels. So that, that goes to show that you know that's something that's systemic, if they know that they're only testing a particular demographic and they're exposing Black folks to lead. Um, but it runs deep in so many different issue areas. And I guess just looking at you know the last year in particular and the phrase, I can't breathe. So, okay, so we've got um, environmental injustices, you know, black communities have at least two times the amount of particular, particulate matter air pollution um, in their environment. And that can be anything from a- agricultural pollution to highway pollution to, you know, landfill pollution and different things like that. So that increase of pollution is leading to higher rates of respiratory illnesses. So higher instances of asthma and other respiratory illnesses that are making it harder for people to breathe. And then we have COVID right now Mm -hmm. that is also disproportionately negatively impacting the Black community that already is compromised by poor air pollution and increased respiratory illnesses, leading to even more devastation and trauma. And then as we know, looking at the Black Lives Matter movement and all the acts of violence against the Black community specifically, where they also can't breathe. So that's three things out of many that are making it harder for the Black community to breathe. And if I think that the the ability to breathe and have clean air and have clean water, that should be a basic human right. And I will argue that every single day because how are people going to be able to experience joy if they don't even have clean air? And we Mm. do because our community is resilient. We still experience joy, but we shouldn't have to go through all of that. Clean air should be a, a human right and a basic minimum and I'll, I'll argue that to the grave. So, yeah.
0: No. Nah. Um, a lot of your fellow um, peers um, have coined the phrase environmental liberation. Mm-hmm. How does how does that phrase hit you?
1: Mm, I love that. That's beautiful. This is my first time actually hearing it. But that that feels good. That feels good. We need community liberation in so many different areas. And environmental liberation being, I think, one of the... F- First and most pressing, because we need we need safe spaces and we need healthy environments to live in.
0: Mm. No, I like it too. Now you're a writer. You've been I, I've been reading some of your dope articles. You, <laughs> re, you're writing all over the place, as, as a matter of fact. And in, in your Vogue article titled "Why Every Environmentalist Should Be Anti-Racist," you said the following: Environmentalists tend to be. We said following quote: Environmentalists tend to be well-meaning, forward-thinking people. Who believe in preserving the planet for generations to come? They will buy reusable cups, wear ethically made clothing, and advocate for endangered species. However, many are hesitant to do the same for endangered black lives and might be unclear on why they should. End quote. So, how must environmentalists be anti-racist?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of environmentalists, for the most part, even if you're looking at like the 60s and 70s and the creation of Earth Day and the hippies and all those folk, they're usually like, you know, they're like nice people. (laughs) But sometimes nice white people do really bad things. And I think um, when we're looking at environmental policy, a lot of people might say, but we have the Clean Air Act and we have the EPA. And it's like, but those well-intentioned laws are only protecting certain people and leaving other people incredibly vulnerable in their living environments. Um, so that's why I think it's important to be anti-racist because being not racist or not you know, bigoted like a bunch of these hippies were probably not racist, some of them maybe, but they were well-intentioned people. But well-intentioned people led to environmental laws that are negative impacting other people. So it's not enough to just be not racist. So I think it's important to actively be anti-racist and to constantly be like, okay, how, let me look into the laws that I'm voting for right now. Let me like make sure that I am like taking a stand against white supremacy and racism and bigotry when I see it, because I think it has to require like some sort of action behind it. It's not enough to just, you know, I'm a nice person. That's, that's not enough because nice people have created some pretty messed up laws. So,
0: No, well, I agree 100%. And as you know, well, a lot of these organizations, when they were created, they were created sallowing themselves from the beginning, mm. right? So back, as you mentioned, the modern day environmental movement, so to speak, which was created 50 years right alongside with the EPA, um, they were created avoiding uh, the black power movement. They were okay. uh, They were avoiding the gay rights movement. They were avoiding the The Audrey Lords and the women's movement of, of their day um to create in essence the climate movement, and so in some cases they didn't want to be a part of that those other movements they were actually even mm-hmm. avoiding it was cases when it was people who were white they were avoiding the the anti vietnam and and you know and they continued that continued they- invo- avoided uh the environmental justice movement when it came up in Warren county they avoided the apartheid yeah. movement, and so I guess. When you see that the history also means they've have they've avoided it for this long, now that when they can't avoid it any longer, what happens now? Would they stay or will they go?
1: I'm curious. I really am, because yeah, I think it was very deliberate that the environmental movement, like you said, was incredibly white, even though they adopt did so they appropriated and used uh, civil rights tactics like bus boycotts and different boycotts for their environmental uh, protests. So that that feels a little extractive. They use those same means for their benefit specifically to create environmental laws that mostly benefited them. So I think it was pretty deliberate. Um, And I think we've seen that happen again, because the Black Lives Matter movement has been going on for quite some time. And then also the children's climate movement has been happening. And then the the general climate movement has been happening, which has been led primarily by like white children or white young people. And we're seeing a similar issue. We have people fighting for Black lives. And within the Black Lives Matter movement is also a call for environmental justice. However, we see this completely separate, almost white youth-led movement that's happening. And it's like the same thing is going on. Mm. We can't just have these side-by-side movements where you all are completely disregarding our lives. Um, So I'm curious to see, because over the summer with intersectional environmentalism, and I think 2020 was the most intersectional year that I have experienced. We got a pandemic. (laughs) We got like (laughs) Black Lives Matter movement. We got a presidential election. We got, you know, healthcare reform. There's all this stuff. So I think a lot of young people especially are gravitating towards systems thinking and intersectional ways of thinking. Cause it just makes more sense to like attack the common thread that flows between all these systems instead of having these separate movements. So I do think that there is going to be change. However, I would be lying if I didn't admit that I think a lot of the actions of last year uh, were performative. So I think some people will fizzle mm. out who weren't really about it, but I do have hope and I have hope because um even recently, the White House just dropped a video that was titled The Intersectionality of the Climate Movement. And then they had a, an IG Live with intersectional environmentalists, and they're they're meeting more so with these grassroots environmental media organizations. And who knows, maybe that's performative, but I think it's a step in the right direction. I'm excited about environmental justice policy really. I just, I love turning on the news. I hate it. But I love turning on the news and hearing yeah. environmental justice come out of people's mouths more than I did a couple years ago Definitely. by even mainstream politicians. So it's like, yeah. you know, I think I think something's working. I think we're going in the right direction.
0: No, I agree with you. I mean, wholeheartedly. I, I'm excited to see uh, where we're going with that. And, you know, I, and I too agree with you. I think that some of these things are performative and, you know, may, may not be long lasting, but we, we're we hoping for the best in that regard. Yeah. Now Absolutely. I know that you also do like, you have, uh, is it green girls company? Let me make yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: The greens girl co.
0: Come on now. You gotta say that like, as though, you know, okay, I got it now. <laughs> so
1: yeah.
0: what is, what is that? And I know it's in round, like, is it, well, tell folks what, what that is.
1: Yeah, so it started as a passion project. I actually need to like take a break and then revisit because I was like, oh, wow, this is supposed to be a hobby and now it's a business. Um, but I was really just thinking about all the different areas and topics that, that were intersectional in nature. And I think one of them is cannabis. And I think the war on drugs um, was so harmful to The black community and displaced a lot of families. And the more that cannabis is legalized, we're still not seeing equity uh, or like cannabis, you know, reparations, Um, even though it's legalized, there's still arrests in states where it's legalized and those arrests, they're still primarily black folks. And then even when you're looking at, you know, um, people who are making a lot of money in cannabis, it's primarily white folks. So I just, I felt like I think legalization of cannabis is going to happen federally in the next decade, probably sooner. It's legalizing in different states, but legalization without restorative justice and making amends for the war on drugs will only lead to more inequality and black people still being left out of the equation. So with the Greens Girl Co. And I'm currently ideating that with uh, Humble Bloom Co., my favorite cannabis consultants. um, We're just trying to figure out a way that we, can have some sort of collective of Black-owned brands or do something really fun. I don't know yet. I started out with just like a pipe collaboration. That was a lot of fun and donated some of those funds to the Bail Project. But who knows what's going to happen in the future? Just doing something with cannabis.
0: I love it. (laughs) I absolutely love it. You are definitely going to green the block. (laughs) Green Girls Co. I love it. So... It's because basically it's an e-commerce. Uh, yeah, it's an e-commerce site. Because uh, I've seen, I mean, obviously we're in hip hop, so I mean, I've definitely seen Ice Cube and the others mm-hmm. who've been doing a lot in the area. And I'm actually, you know, for me, it's 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 a bitter pill on some aspects because you're right. I've seen so many of our community who have literally done some long bids in prison. I mean, 20, 30, 50 years behind this. And then Mm -hmm. I saw many communities coming out, getting involved with cannabis, and they didn't look like us. I'm like, man, this is crazy. We went to prison and, and, you know, we're part of the whole, you know, just the whole crime bill and the whole process. And now, you know, we're not benefiting. So to see Mm -hmm. you and then you're connecting the dots between that, like you're you're literally saying that this is I want to connect the dots between the intersectional environmentalism and cannabis. Yeah. In this process, that's amazing. Well, I wish you the best on that. I mean, I mean, that's going to be pretty good. Now you should be able to do well because you got like a million followers, right? I Um, do not. Yeah, I looked. I was got like it's like a million. Is it a million? Is it a million too? It's like it's
1: like two (laughs) hundred thousand, and then there's you know another little two hundred thousand on my other channel. So you know, like four hundred,
0: not that much. Little 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 (laughs) So I love it. So so how let's talk about that. What I know that during a lot of that, um, particularly during the uprisings and the movement mm-hmm. for Black Lives, people were looking for people like you. Um, did you find that that was when you grew? Um, your social media was doing the movement for Black Lives, or, or how? Or how do yeah. you feel when you saw it grow?
1: Um yeah, that's when it grew. It was during. Um, the summer, and I made a graphic that said environmentalists for Black Lives Matter. And then if people swiped through it, it said, what is intersectional environmentalism? And I wrote a definition that felt legit to me. And and then if they swiped, they could take the intersectional environmentalist pledge. And I was trying to just think like, how can I convince environmentalists that like you need to step up because this is ridiculous. And I, I couldn't have imagined, I thought I would lose followers, but I gained like a hundred thousand followers in a couple of weeks. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it was really cool, but I also, uh, hmm. it's, I just, I didn't want it to be about like, just me like always making sure that it's going back to the cause i guess because i think with the rise in my platform i did see a lot of other black creators uh you know especially if they're talking about anti-racism their accounts grew but a lot of those accounts were very similar they were biracial women or lighter skinned black women and i was like why are our platforms you know growing so tremendously and then i started to realize that okay a lot of my followers were black folks. But then a lot of these new followers were almost like white people looking for the answers of how to Mm. be Not racist. So I think that's been interesting to dabble with because now that I have all these followers, some of them are people who really want to be there. And other people, I think it was like a desperation to learn about anti racism really quickly. And now, like, what about if I post about my joy? Why are they only engaging in content where I'm talking about Black trauma? So it's been interesting getting those followers who want to be there for very specific reasons when I have to be like, I also have a life and I want to post about my joy. I don't exist solely to educate uh, strangers online. Um, So it's been, it's been interesting, but I'm really grateful for it because there's been a lot of good that's come out of it. Being able to start the organization, um, a council and also have like, you know, 10 or so employees, which is really cool. Um, But yeah, it's, it's been interesting to say the least. I'm not going to lie.
0: Congratulations. That's a, that's a great, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's still, that's fantastic. I mean, do you sometimes get tired having to be the one to help particularly white people explain to them what it means to not be racist?
1: <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about that. I was like, I don't think I want this to be in my life like forever. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. And just making sure that, um, yeah, there has to be a balance of what I'm doing. Like the majority, Majority of what I want to do, I want it to be for myself, my community, my friends, my peers, people in environmentalism, um, or people who are interested in social justice. And then a small part of it, I think can be that education for allyship. But I just don't think that that's my calling. Like just thinking about it for the long run, I don't think that I could like solely exist to um, answer like problematic questions from, from like white people who, who just got a lot of questions.
0: <laughs> that's very funny. So now that you are now as you are this environmental influencer, you have this following. Uh, what does a life in the a, a day in the life of Leah Thomas look like? Like, how does your what day do I- look? So you get today you talk to you which is kind of cool. I hope.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, what do I do? Hmm. do you- Well, I'm working on my book right now. It's uh, essentially an environmental justice primer, so really diving into the history of environmental justice um, and also intersectional theory. Um, So, yeah, I've been working on that. I'm turning. I have to turn in my manuscript in the next two months. So, just been furiously typing away. Um, At Intersectional Environmentalists, we have a bunch of researchers, and I think a lot of people don't know what goes into these little social media graphics, but we research different topics. Um, currently we're doing one called the intersectional history of environmentalism. And we're doing like, you know, fund facts from throughout history. One was about Hazel M. Johnson, the mother of environmental justice. And we just posted one today about George Washington Carver. Um, and what else do I do? And then I also to you know, keep the lights on. I do partnerships every now and again. Um, so it might be something like whether it's, Commercial, or just you know, somebody's like, Hey, take a photo with this water bottle, and I'm like, Okay, <laughs> I might do that. Um, so that's something that I do as well, I guess, on the influencer <laughs> front. Um, and then lots of speaking engagements and things like that virtually, and um, yeah, that's what I'm up to.
0: No, that's good. I mean, so besides holding up the uh, the occasional water bottle, that's something. <laughs> 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 and take the picture. I, I, I'm gonna have to get you like a bunch of hats. You know, I got I, I got a lot of hats.
1: Here
0: <laughs> I got yeah. a lot of hats with a lot of. Well, they know they they're great things. They might say like uh, no. Well, now no no no, no cakes. But I mean it's like no uh, like no dapple no, stop line three. So
1: I got to figure it. out how
0: to send you hats. Do You wear hats?
1: I do sometimes. Okay. I do wear hats.
0: Okay, we gotta figure. I gotta figure out how to get <laughs> you a. Get you a hat so we can we can weed that into your into your marketing yeah <laughs> give me the give, give me the hookup price though don't, don't give me the don't give me the uh, I will. <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> don't even worry don't even worry <laughs> I, I,
0: that's what's up so what, what what are your thoughts on that you mentioned earlier something that's very important that's kind of going to colorism a little bit mm-hmm. right and about um about being an influencer what are your thoughts now about being a about this the whole environmental celebrity aspect of this process?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I guess from the reverse, like, so for example, there are so many like white actors or musicians or et cetera, like Leonardo DiCaprio, for example. So people, he's revered as an environmentalist, even though a lot of his lifestyle choices on the daily aren't necessarily the most um, environmental. But I think people or society were used to the that the reverse happening so celebrities using their resources to become environmentalists and i feel like they're not necessarily judged as harshly however we're seeing kind of a rise of the opposite happening where there might be an environmental advocate or even people who are prominent in other social movements Then suddenly having brands wanting to work with them, because instead of working with models, they're like, "Okay, we want to highlight people who are doing stuff out in the real world. And I think there's a lot of complications with that. And there's also a lot of scrutiny, which I think is definitely warranted because we're not familiar with seeing advocates getting certain press attention. However, I think that press attention and whatnot exposure can be good in certain circumstances if it's leading to it's directing back to the cause, which in my case, I feel like that has been the case because through these partnerships, there's been able to those brands have been able to work with other organizations or find like people within, I guess, our network that they can work with. Um, But I could see why that might be weird for people. And I think another thing is kind of dismantling the notion that activists or advocates or educators should not be compensated for their work. Um, It's almost like the, the notion of a starving artist or the starving activist. People want, if you are into education, they want you to starve for it to prove to them that you want to do this work for free. And I think for me, I was in a position where I was unemployed over the summer. All of our co-founders were actually unemployed. So we were on unemployment and we were like, how can we fund this dream organization that we want to do? And then we're like, oh my God, there's a sustainable tea brand that wants me to take a photo holding tea. And if that paycheck can pay the salaries of five people in our organization and this is maybe the way that we can hack the system. So I think sometimes people don't, you know, see all that goes into it. Um, And I do think that, you know, activists deserve to be compensated for their work, but I think there is some complication there with trying to understand like, okay, if you are an environmentalist or if you're an activist, are you allowed to also be embraced by the media or does that mean that you shouldn't, I guess? So I don't know. I think I'm okay with it personally because it's been able to bring back attention to the cause, but I also do feel some discomfort sometimes with people knowing me versus knowing the cause that I hopefully am standing for. Um, But you know what? If some random company wants me to be in a Super Bowl commercial, which just happened, if that helps people learn about environmental justice, then I'll do that 110%. So yeah.
0: No, I mean, I mean, I I obviously, I understand. I mean, obviously, I I am, I guess, seen as a figure within the movement. And so I guess I understand what that means. I guess my question to you is, and this is, I mean, I'm and this will help me and help many of us in this in this position, who are kind of faces, so to speak. We have there's a platform, as we would like to say. We know that's great for audience building, and and I agree with you. You you should I, I say it louder for folks in the back that people need to be compensated for this work. I think though, should we also be cautious though, because we we don't want to be in a position where if we say that this is a predominantly white movement that has ignored putting particularly black people and brown people in positions of leadership, not just as far as faces, but leadership. And they've and they've avoided that by having them fund their organizations. Mm. Can we maybe get let them off the hook a little bit because if they see me or see you or see whoever, that then people say, "Oh, okay. Well, look, they have a black person who's their their mm. spokesperson. I mean, how 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 do we uh, stop that from happening?"
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think for me, I don't partner with these like organizations, I guess, that you're referencing. Um, It would mostly be companies, but I guess those companies, like you said, some of them can have really, who knows what their track records are. So for example, I partnered with Tazo, the tea company, and through that internship, so they're owned by Unilever, which is one of the world's largest polluters. However, Tazo just partnered with SZA to create like the tree core to plant all these trees. And then they, uh, you know, they, we didn't have a salary to pay interns. So they decided to pay the living wages of eight interns. So it was, it was kind of interesting the way that those partnerships are going. Um, But yeah, I guess, hmm. I think it's definitely important to be cautious because there's a lot of greenwashing or woke washing happening right now, where people are trying to partner with activists to put them, you know, in the front of their campaign. So hopefully other people think that the company as a whole is really woke. Um, but I personally haven't, I don't think I've seen that play out necessarily with my peers and with myself, but I think that's something to definitely be aware of and definitely um and the scope of that contract, specifying which ways the brands can represent you and what they can say and what they can't say, I think is an important step for sure.
0: No, I agree, and I and I think something that we all have to look at carefully, just to make yeah. sure that we're seeing, you know, because there's I, I like what you, when you were when you were explaining, you know, utilizing those that compensation to help interns. I mean, that really helps to do the work, and then at the same time. But then how do you ensure that you're not this, how, we're, we're not just not really being compensated correctly? You know what I mean? Like, we're, mm-hmm. really, we're really stopping that. How, how do you then explain one of the things you mentioned earlier about, like, Dr. Bullet, which is great. I'm glad to hear that, you know, that, that connection, that they, whoever was trying to create that riff um, wasn't successful. And it probably was just yeah. based upon the maturity from both sides. But as you're doing your work now, which is different than maybe those who did this work, 40, 30, 20 years ago, um, they may not see it as being, you know, I mean, obviously they, as you mentioned before, they they went through, I walked through ages of snow and 40 <laughs> miles to, to, to get to school and we had to go organize people. We had to do voter registration. And, and that's all, it's all, we're still doing that for sure. But then how do you then explain that what you're doing is as important as what and can connect to what they did back then?
1: Yeah, I think that um, I don't like comparisons. And I think that happens when there's a lack of representation and say there's only like a couple people of a particular identity group that are like in a certain area that the media has chosen to elevate. For some reason, there's almost like a like, compare yourselves, and that, or that, like, that happens a lot. And I really don't like that. So, if anyone ever tries to compare the work that we're doing to the environmental justice movement, I say, like, full stop. The work that we're doing right now, and I think I would talk to those environmental justice advocates, is to make what they did necessary to learn about an environmental education. So what we're doing, and if people want to call it a movement, they can, but I think it really is to dismantle the current educational system because as an environmental science student and many of the people who work for us or are part of our community, are environmental educators work at environmental nonprofits or are studying environmental science. Unfortunately, environmental justice was not a requirement for me to learn about. And I got a degree in environmental science and policy Mm. without having a class that spoke about the environmental justice movement. That's something that I had to do outside of the classroom. So I think I would let them know like, hey, you all like the contributions that have happened are so important and have laid the groundwork for, I would say the sunrise movement. I would say the climate justice movement that happened in 2018 All of that happened because of the environmental justice movement, like pioneering um, that. And I think I would just really make sure to reinforce that. I think the work that I'm doing in particular is to have a better retelling of environmental history that includes all of those people. Because it breaks my heart when people say, I don't know who Dr. Robert Bullard is, or why do environmental science students, why can they graduate without knowing who the mother of environmental justice was, Hazel M. Johnson? So I think that's my fight. It's not necessarily, and that's a different fight, Um, but I think it can further the work that a lot of environmental justice leaders did. But I try to stay away from certain comparisons and things like that um, because I don't know. I don't think it's necessary sometimes, but I also think it is incredibly necessary to make sure in my work that I do credit everybody who came before me, because usually I think the frustration that I get from people is, do you know your history? And then if I'm like, yep, I do then it's like, okay, you good, you good, you good. But as long as you're not coming up here trying to say that you're reinviting or reinventing the wheel, then, then we good, but yeah.
0: No, well, I, I can tell you, I appreciate hearing that. That, and I'm sure many of those who hopefully are hearing this now um, appreciate what you just said. I think that means, it means a lot to, and I, I know this from being around a lot of the elders. It means yeah. a lot to just, to be acknowledged. For what for what they've done so i'm sure they would appreciate that um bringing it current though i actually want to bring you brought up a great point as we discuss i mean obviously there's a lot of great movements from sunrise and a lot of the the other youth movements um there's also a lot of this there's a lot of black and brown um and queer and positive other movements like pop caucus uh folks like dream defenders uh, Generation Green. There's a long list of of, of them. Then uh, there's, you know, how do we how do we get them into the conversation, so to speak, so that it yeah. becomes that becomes the first thing that we say.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I love that, and I think that's why collaboration is so important. And like, even so, Wawa is this incredible um, black youth activist and she started um, Reclaiming Our Time, which is this really cool um, environmental movements, like pass the mic to other black environmentalists. And she's had accounts like Mark Ruffalo and these huge accounts, like just hosts these different folks. And I think that was such an amazing example of collaboration. So platforms like my own, even though it's new to me, but it's a bigger platform, there's no time to waste. I need to make sure that I am sharing that with other people and partnering with those folks. And then when Black Girl Environmentalist is this huge platform, which I see and I am manifesting that for the future, then doing the same thing. And I think that's a part of cyclical amplification. Like it doesn't just stop when one organization has made it or one person has made it. What's more important is that community liberation and making sure you're bringing other people, looping them in, you know, continuously. And I think that's something that I hope to do with our organization. And I hope other organizations do. You all are doing that. You know, you're sharing your platform with other people. And I think that's something that's really important. Also, I think that's something in particular that the Black community does really well. I was reading this um, article. Apparently, Black folks, when we obtain wealth, we give more back to our community than other races. And I was like, okay, I see. I see us. We out here. (laughs) (laughs) So you got to do that. You got to cyclically amplify continuously.
0: No, I love that. So I got just two more questions for you. Is, one is hard, one is one is easy. So the easy okay. one, easy one first. Well, this might be a hard one. We'll see. So, uh, what what makes you hopeful in the in in, in overall? What makes you hopeful?
1: What makes me hopeful? Um, I'm very lucky to have, so my great-grandmother is still alive. Her daughter, my grandma's still alive. My mama, she's still around. There's me. So I've got four generations of Black women and and my sister. But being able to see even my great-grandmother smile and my grandma smile and my mom smile, even though they came before me, I think that Black joy and hope, after everything that they've been through, like that gives me hope. that makes me smile. Um, yeah, they make me smile.
0: Oh man, that's beautiful. Um, and okay, it's the hard one now. okay. So you gotta that's go it. on a trip. <laughs> gotta go on a trip. gotta go on a trip here. You, you already get to, you already get to pack uh, two artists. That's mm. two. Not, you can't have the uh, the whole playlist. That's it. Dang. And it's a long, it's, it's, it's like a trip for like, you'll be gone for like for a very, very long time. This is it. Who are mm. those two artists going to be?
1: Oh, why? I would, it was hard. Um, <laughs> I hmm. told you it going to be a hard
0: one. I told but you, you know, it was coming.
1: <laughs> so this is going to sound like the most like typical <laughs> answer, but I would, I would pack Beyonce and Solange. Okay. Because okay. two different moods. Two sisters, two different vibes, hype me up, let me chill, a little bit of both. I, I would pack Beyonce and Solange for sure.
0: I love that. That's, that's like one of the best answers ever for that question. <laughs> I'm serious. That's one of the best answers ever. Man, you know, so i, I tell you a little fun fact. When we were doing our climate album uh, called Home, Heal Our Mother Earth. Uh, we had a number of artists who were on there. We had Common, Neo, uh, Anthony Smith, Elle Varner, Um, And the artist who was going to put a climate song on there um, uh, was Beyonce. Um, and so for some, it, it, we, we couldn't get the song on there, uh, but it was sand. She ended up putting the song. So her song, Sandcastles, mm. is actually a climate song. So, what? Yeah, they, oh, they, they, my God. I told Thank you it was you. a fun <laughs> fact. Yeah. I'm gonna say that in my next
1: talk. My next talk when I'm trying to like relate to like, you know, high school or something. Like, Did you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, so cool. That, I'm cool. I'm <laughs> cool. <laughs> Man, it was so good to have you. Where can folks, if folks wanna uh find you and get in contact, uh, how can they do that?
1: Mm, I think the easiest way would be on Instagram at Green Girl Leah and also um, Intersectional Environmentalist. And if you want to find us online, GreenGirlLeah and IntersectionalEnvironmentalist dot com. Mm.
0: Leah, thank you so much for being with thank us here on you. the coolest show. Thanks yeah. for having
1: me. This was the coolest mm. show.
0: This is this is, and that is our guest today, Leah Thomas. Founder of Intersectional Environmentalists. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the the people.